Welcome to the We Believe in Florida Citrus podcast, brought to you by Florida Grower Magazine. The We Believe in Florida Citrus initiative shines a light on the positive work taking place to build a sustainable future for the state's signature crop. Each episode of this podcast will bring you insights and expertise from key players in the citrus industry. Now, here's Florida Grower Editor Frank Giles with this episode's interview. Welcome to the We Believe in Florida Citrus Podcast. Today, we've got a special guest, uh, Jude Grosser. He's a professor of citrus breeding and genetics with the University of Florida. Uh, Jude, welcome to the podcast. I know everybody in the citrus industry uh, anxiously uh, watches what you guys are doing in citrus breeding, and we're glad to have you on. Thank you very much. It's my my pleasure to be here and to chat about my favorite topics. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, first, before we get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been with the university, and just a little brief brief history. Well, actually, I'm the person that's been at the CREC longer than anyone else. So I, uh, I grew up in Kentucky, and uh, I did my PhD at the University of Kentucky, and uh, I had both a biotechnologist and a, a plant breeder as co-advisors on my PhD. So I got I got to see both sides of, of the equation there. Um, I came here in 1984, so I've been here almost 37 years. And they brought me in here because I knew how to do a, a, a laboratory technique called protoplast fusion. So the idea is you can take cells from two different parents and uh, fuse them together to make sort of like test tube babies. And, uh, and then through the embryogenic pathway, we can regenerate plants back. So it's different from making hybrids by conventional breeding because uh, in conventional breeding, you know, you cross mom and dad and you get a random half um, half set of genes from each, the mom and dad, they go together. And so all the, um, the progeny are, are a little bit different from each other. But in the, in the fusion process, the, the process is completely additive. So you're actually adding all of the genes from mom and dad together and you get one uh, genotype back. So, um, you end up with what's called a tetraploid instead of a diploid. So we have diploids, triploids, and tetraploids in citrus. And diploids, the normal two sets of chromosomes. And that's what humans are. That's what most of the citrus trees in the field are. And then tetraploids have four sets of chromosomes. So um, one of the ways that uh, we use this technology in breeding uh, cyan varieties is to cross the tetraploids that we make from the fusion process back with diploids and then we can get triploids and triploids are always seedless. So all the bananas that you buy in the store are actually triploids. And when you have that odd number of sets of chromosomes during the meiosis process, um, it interferes with pairing and it interferes with uh, seed development so you don't get seeds. So most of the triploids you make are either seedless or almost seedless. And the Persian lime is an example of that occurring naturally in citrus. And so we're using this process to make a lot of um, seedless varieties and, and they're starting to come now. And, and that the, for rootstock breeding, it's a different story because we're actually breeding at the tetraploid level. And this gives us an opportunity to increase the genetic diversity because when, you, when you're crossing tetraploids, you can actually have four diploids involved at one time. So it, it it's an opportunity to almost double the genetic diversity that you can get in progeny for selection. 
So after I figured out how to do all this in citrus and uh, make it work, um, then I had to, to figure out what to do with all the plants I was creating. So that's what pushed me into the actual citrus breeding business. And uh, we hired Fred Gaminer a year after I started. So he's been here 36 years. And of course he was, he came in as an expert in conventional breeding. So uh, he pretty much educated on me on how to do that. And we formed a, a team where we have complimentary uh, things that we're interested in and skill sets. And so it's, it's worked out very, very well. And of course, Bill Castle became part of the team too, our emeritus uh, retired professor who's now in the hall of fame. And he was sort of our uh, field person that kind of grounded us on making sure that, you know, we knew how to get our plants out in the replicated trials that generated good statistical data and so forth. So we've had this, this three man team going for, for quite a while now. So it's, it's been really a, a privilege to be part of that. Absolutely. I, that those, that is a good team. I know those other two guys well, too, and they're great, great researchers and great guys, too. With, um, you know, there's obviously with HLB, there's been a, a lot of interest in new rootstocks and varieties that are resistant or tolerant to the disease. How has the IFAS breeding program changed since HLB came along? That's that's an interesting question because, you know, we, we go through a lot of trouble to create our babies. And some of them require biotechnology steps like embryo rescue and, and sophisticated laboratory techniques to produce the babies. And so we, you know, when we plant our, our babies out in the field, you know, we, we create several thousand new hybrids each year and, and they're being created both in my program and Fred's. And so when greening came uh, to watch all, a lot of our babies get sick and die was, uh, was tragic. I mean, it's a lot more effort goes into producing a variety improvement a candidate tree than, than a standard, you know, nursery tree that a, a grower would buy to plant in the field. So uh, we thought, well, you know, what can we do? What can we do to get, you know, typically before greening, we would get 80 to 90% of the new babies up to flowering and fruiting, and we'd be able to evaluate the fruit. And there, there's all, always a few um, that are genetically weak and fall by the wayside. But when greening came, that number went down drastically. I mean, we were probably down in 20 to 40% of them actually getting through that process because of the disease severity. And so we, we jumped into the nutrition business and learned a lot about that. And actually, um, actually I'm the one that figured out that the nutrient deficiencies, and this is not NPK, but it's all the secondary and micronutrients are actually, the deficiencies are actually twice as great in the roots than they are in the, in the top of the tree. And so we started uh, testing slow release fertilizer uh, recipes custom made for us um, on, our, on our breeding trees to see if we could slow down the, the progression of the disease. And sure enough, it's worked uh, very, very well. So with, the, with these supplemental treatments of all of our field trees, now we're back to getting 80 to 9% of our babies back through uh, the process and they're you know, flowering and fruiting successfully and the, 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 the overall health of the tree since we're, attacking this problem head on by providing these uh, nutrients that are deficient. Uh, it's made a huge difference. So what else has happened is, of course, all of our uh, efforts now are directed almost solely to focusing on greening tolerance in both scions and rootstocks, but you can't forget about all the other things you need. For, like, for example, in rootstocks, we can't forget about blight uh, because it was taking out, you know, 10 to 12% of the trees in, in some of our better growers uh, fields. And so you can't forget about that. You can't forget about diapreppies and phytophthora and 
uh, tristazivirus and, and nematodes and all these things. So, uh, so you, you keep an eye on the germplasm that you're using and you're always trying to, when you're making a new cross, whether it be for a scion or a rootstock, you, get, you have to keep, keep in mind all the things that you want to end up with in that, in that baby. So in a lot of cases, we, we have at least one parent has very strong HLB tolerance. In some cases, both parents do. So that, that's, that's the direction that we've gone in. So um, we, try to, we try to have an opportunity to, to get complementary traits in the rootstock. And then for the sign, of course, if, if it's a sweet orange, uh, we're focusing on early maturity because we're interested in having a replacement for Hamlin, which seems to be more susceptible than, than mid-season and, and Valencia oranges. And it also is it's experienced in a much larger problem with fruit drop. Uh, but, it, but before even greening came, you know, we wanted to replace Hamlin anyway because the, the juice quality is is not up to par with Valencia and the, the juice color is, it doesn't even make a grade A juice on a standalone product. It has to be blended. So uh, we've been trying to improve the flavor and the color of, of selections that have opportunity to replace Hamlin anyway. So now, now we've just combined that with uh, getting better greening tolerance in the mix. So um, that's, that's the guidance now is, you know, everything's HLB first, but you can't forget about all the other things that you need to have. Absolutely. Well, let's get right into, you know, the, the big question. I know, I know a lot of the growers are interested in, uh, let's start out with root stocks. What are some of your current favorites uh, that you're looking at and evaluating? Okay. So of all the root stocks that are available commercially now, you, you have to remember that, um, that's all being based on data from uh, ongoing trials where we have several years of data. So none, none of the commercial rootstocks available now, and that includes you know, the top one, 942 is the, the most widely planted rootstock in the state at the moment. Uh, but they were not pre-selected for HLB tolerance because they, they were here before that process um, got un underway. Uh, so from, from my rootstocks that are commercially available, I have, I have about probably a half a dozen that I've I think will work fine, especially if if they're combined with a good uh, scion and, and grown under a, uh, an optimized nutrition program that um, features using whatever method to, to provide year-round elevated levels of these uh, affected secondary and micronutrients. So I like UFR1. Um, UFR1 is a tetraploid rootstock. It's totally underplanted. Um, there has been some seed available, but virtually nobody's actually planting it. But um, in our trials, it continues to show fairly good HLB tolerance and good fruit quality. It makes a small, medium-sized tree, so you can you can plant uh, at a higher density. Uh, and um, in the trials, you know, I've been looking at driving through our trials just in the past few weeks, and I'm noticing that trees on UFR1 have uh, darker green and fuller canopies than, than trees on a lot of the other rootstocks. Uh, UFR2 is another interesting one. It's done well in trials, but um, some of the growers have, they, they get impatient with it because it's, it's got Clio, it's one fourth Clio and it inherited that Clio trait of being slow to come into production. So it takes an extra year or two for it to really kick into production. And sometimes growers are watching other rootstocks come into production ahead of it and they, then they give up on it. But uh, we're finding that some trees that are maturing and you know, that are getting up past six years old uh, the trees are really coming on strong on UFR2. So it's kind of a sleeper at the beginning, but seems to do really well later on. 
Uh, UFR4 is probably the most widely planted of, of our UF rootstocks. And it seems to do well uh, in, in a lot of different soil types. Uh, it tested very strongly against diapreppies and phytophthora in our greenhouse tests. So it, seem, it seems to be one that you can use just about anywhere. And it, it has a very high survival rate. So it's uh, uh, probably a good choice. And then UFR5 makes slightly bigger trees than four. And the fruit quality is really good. It's really a good rootstock for uh, fresh fruit selections, grows off trees in a hurry. Uh, it also did well in the, in the diapreppies phytophthora testing that we did in the, in the greenhouse. So it's uh, four and five are probably the most popular ones uh, so far. UFR six is interesting. It makes smaller trees, but it makes really outstanding fruit quality. I mean, we're, we're getting uh, over seven pound solids with our mid-season oranges, Bernia and Valquarius on it. Uh, several years in a row now, and the yields yields are good. It's good for higher density plantings, and it's very cold hardy. Both parents are cold hardy, so it's some one that definitely should be tried up north um, in the citrus in the Panhandle and other places where they're growing citrus in North Florida. UFR fifteen is uh, is one we don't have as much data on, uh, but in um, trials with some of our bigger companies that we've been working with, um, it's turning out to be in the top uh, four or five um, for, for yield. And it's a, it grows a much bigger tree. It's a more vigorous tree. Uh, so if you're, if you're resetting in a grove where you've got really big trees, it's a really good choice. Uh, and it grows trees off pretty well too. UFR 17 is the last one I'll mention. And it also makes small to medium sized trees. It's got sour orange as a parent. So it does pretty good on uh, flatwoods type soils. And it, it's done it's done very well too. So all of these are available uh, via seeds and um, some of the nurseries, there's several nurseries that are licensed to um, provide these trees to, to the growers. So they're, they're all available. Um, we've got a few more um, that we're considering for release and um, you'll hear more, more about them in the, in the coming months probably. So we're, we're preparing preparing to release probably three or four more. Excellent. Uh, well, now let's just move on to Scion varieties. What are some of, some of your favorites in that category? All right, well, that's, um, that's a good topic for me to talk about as well. Uh, of course, everyone knows that Sugarbell uh, that Fred released is uh, the most HLB tolerant variety that we have. Um, it's, it, the trees grow like a weed. Um, this past year, we did have some issues with uh, fruit quality, um, but there was a lot of problems with a lot of varieties this past year because of the terrible fall we had where we, we didn't really have any cold nights and we had an excess rain. So the soils remained saturated for much longer than normal. Uh, so we're hoping that was a one time, time thing, but Sugar Bell, you know, has that really aromatic, exceptional flavor and aroma that um, is just really appealing. Um, it doesn't peel as easy as, as we would like, uh, but it, it's a really good good variety, and we're we're also doing tests to use it as a um, juice blending uh, that, to move it into the, the flow into our juice our orange juice stream. And so we've tested uh, working with Yu Wang uh, here at the center, our flavoromics uh, professor Fred and I have tested mixing um, sugar bell juice with Valquarius juice and Hamlin juice. And uh, the blends are actually favored by our, our consumer test, taste test panels over the straight up orange juice. So 
Um, and, it, and it can make up to eight pounds solid. So um, it, it's, there's gonna be an opportunity for uh, crossing over using, you know, the fruit that's not sold fresh to, to move it right into the juice stream. Uh, Fred's released a new variety called Marathon that I really like because the trees are very HLB tolerant and they're very vigorous. Um, they are a little bit slow to produce compared to some other varieties like Bingo. Uh, but the neat thing about this variety is that it has exceptional flavor. It can be peeled at seedless, but it has a four month harvest window and that's why we named it Marathon. So you can actually harvest the fruits from September all the way through to December. Uh, so that, that provides a, a big opportunity for, for packing houses. So we're hoping that that particular variety takes off. Now for oranges, uh, I've done a whole lot of work on oranges and the first one we released is uh, Valquarius and you, you wonder where that name came from. Well, it's a Valencia that it matures in the Aquarius period. So it's a mid January uh, selection of Valencia so Valencia, normally we don't start getting till March 1st and for Valquarius, you can start getting, getting it in mid-January. So it's a mid-season Valencia, basically. It, it's attractive, so it's good for uh, packing. And there are some growers that are, that are packing it as a fresh mid-season orange and doing well. Uh, but the orange juice processors really like the quality because it has Valencia quality juice in, in, uh, in mid-January. The original release, the trees are, are very thorny. And that's because we lost the second and third generation budwood to the canker eradication program that the state had, had been conducting. And we, we uh, used this, uh, the first generation tree that we had left to uh, introduce it into the parent tree program. We've since reduced, we've introduced the later stage bud line uh, and the trees are still a little thorny initially, but they grow out of it and most of the fruits produce terminal on terminal branches. So the thorns aren't really a problem for harvesting and it, it's much less thorny um, when the trees are actually producing the fruit than the original clone. So that's, that's no longer an issue in my opinion. And then for Valencia, uh, we've screened over a thousand clones of Valencia and we've released the B965 and it's a winner in every way. It has the same maturity date as standard Valencia, uh, but it comes into production very fast. The trees are, are yielding a crop the second year. And uh, we actually had uh, trees that were just under four years old this past year that were already producing six pound solids. So in a year when the solids had been so horrible to have trees that young producing uh, six pound solids is, and, there, and that was on UFR4 rootstock by the way. So uh, that's, that's, that's pretty exciting and it may you know, help us get over this poor juice quality on our, on our young trees uh, problem. So, it also was the highest yielding clone in a, in a test of 32 uh, selections that, where we took seven years of, of yield and fruit quality data. So it jumped up to the front right at the beginning and stayed at the top of the heap, both for pound solids and, and boxes per tree uh, all the way across seven years. So it's definitely a winner and our processors like it. And then we have the OLL series of oranges. Uh, we just published uh, an article in the Citrus Industry Magazine on this on these oranges, but they are um, just su of superb quality oranges. They seem to be a little more robust than, against greening than uh, traditional oranges, particularly if they're on a good nutrition program. And they do some years, well, they'll come in a little, a couple weeks ahead of Valencia mid-February. We released uh, number eight, OLL8 and OLL4. Initially, OLL stood for Ori Lee Late, but now that we're finding some clones that are maturing earlier uh, and we also wanted to recognize 
the contribution of Ori's widow, uh, Louise, who just passed away recently. We changed the designation of the OOL to the Ori and Louise Lee series of oranges. So that's what the OOL stands for. So eight and four have been available. Uh, they're both being planted. They both produce juice that has better color than Valencia and in taste panel comparisons with Valencia, it either ties or, or beats them. It usually beats them in the taste panel evaluations. And we found another clone that it just jumped out whenever we were comparing it to the others uh, in these taste panels for flavor. And that's OOL 20. It was just released. Um, it has something different about the flavor. Uh, people have described the flavors having a, some sort of bouquet uh, flavor, you know, flowery flavor that just is really pleasant. And uh, the processors have picked up on this too, and they're finding it in their taste panel uh, evaluations. And so, um, just based on its its enhanced flavor, uh, we've we've released that. So these things are 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 produce darker juice and they can, it can have higher bricks also. Um, for example, OOL8 um, in the four seasons in a row now, we have some trees out of Ori Lees on rough lemon that have never had silver control. And there's Valencia's in the same block on rough lemon and uh, it's produced seven pound solids four years in a row where the Valencia has never, never been above six. So if you figure that out across an, an and that can add up to almost a thousand dollars an acre. So if the trees are, are producing the same amount of fruit and, and the OOLs generally yield even slightly better than the Valencia. So there's a big opportunity here um, and we're continuing to work with, with oranges. Uh, and we found some OOL clones that are showing uh, a January 1st maturity. And we're also doing a lot of work with Vernia, which is a, a mid-season orange that is similar to Valquarius. Um, but we're actually now finding some new clones that are maturing the 1st of December. So we've got some good candidates in the pipeline that uh, may actually be good replacements for Hamlin. They'll, they'll be easier to grow. Uh, they won't, hopefully won't have as much fruit drop and the juice quality is gonna be far superior to that, to that of Hamlin. So we're optimistic about uh, uh, the future of working with these true oranges that won't require any uh, classification changes you know they can be fed right into the current juice stream because they're true oranges very good one one quick note about ori lee you were one of the or was the main nominator of ori for our citrus achievement award some years back and really enjoyed working with you on that process and getting to know ori and writing the story uh for his achievement award so that was that was a, a nice way to honor him before he before he passed yeah, he, he was such a, a humble man. Um, but the one thing that stands out, and I never forget this, but every time I was ever with him or, or talking to him, he would say, the last thing he would say is, if there's anything at all I can do to help you get the job done, just let me know. And, and he went out and proved that on a constant basis. <laughs> Absolutely. Good deal. You know, with the amount of material you guys are looking at, and it's in the thousands and thousands, um, how do you evaluate it all? That's a very good question. So let me start with rootstocks first. Uh, so with rootstocks, uh, we have uh, now have a, a direct screening for HLB. So we make crosses at the diploid and the tetraploid level, and, and Fred and I both make crosses. When we get the seeds, uh, it's it's a large number, so it's more than more plants than you can actually handle. So we plant them in 
in a calcareous soil that's been inoculated with both of our problem species of Phytophthora. And that kind of shrinks the numbers down because it kind of weeds out all, all of the riffraff right off the bat. So anything that comes through that screen, then we take a whole uh, bud stick about 10 or 12 inches long from a field tree that's suffering from HLB of, of Valencia, and we graft that stick directly onto that, that original liner. Uh, now we, before we do that though, you know, we've taken the top off of the tree and, and propagated it by cutting. So we have a backup uh, line. We have replicates of, of each of these candidates. So they get grafted with the hot stick of Valencia. We grow the tree out from this stick that's got a slug of, of the pathogen, the bacterial pathogen in it. And so any of those trees that grow off and they look pretty good there, um, then we've got an arrangement with the Picos farm, the USDA farm at Fort Pierce where we can plant these trees out. So it's a high through, throughput screening method. We can go through about 2000 seeds per year. And uh, so we've screened over basically over 16,000 uh, hybrids and about a thousand of them have made it to the field so far, usually about a hundred per year. Uh, and, and then we just watch and see what they do over there. And um, the results have been really interesting and we're really excited because we're finding uh, we're finding some of these rootstocks have the ability to mitigate the disease. You know, trees are showing really good tolerance, and we're finding some that actually, we, when we test them with PCR to see how much bacteria is in the tree, we find some there's absolutely no bacteria in the root systems at all. Uh, but then, if you test the tops of those same trees, you know, you find a range of uh, bacterial populations. But we're actually finding some where the rootstock looks like it's suppressing the population of the bacteria in the top of the tree and the population that we started with when we planted the tree has started to disappear. And over time, you know, the, the bacteria is disappearing. So this is really exciting because if, if you have a rootstock that can actually get rid of the infection, then you, that can bring back all these other scions that are more susceptible, like, you know, like Hamlin's red grapefruits or even the honey murkoff that's been so lucrative in the past. And, and we have low seeded selections of the honey murkai, so we already have a market for it. So if we can bring that back, that would be really huge for our fresh fruit industry. Uh, now for science, it's more complicated because we grow, we grow the raw material out in the field and then you don't know what the maturity date's gonna be or anything. So we have some uh, very skilled people that we rely on and they, they go through the blocks where the trees, the trees are fruiting uh, maybe once a month and, uh, and, and they, they keep really good records and they're tasting all the fruit and taking notes on which ones if they find something that that tastes good and has other characteristics that we're interested in like good color um, they take notes on whether how easy is it to peel and so forth um, so when they when they come back with that information if we really like something then uh, Fred and I'll go out and look at the fruit or we'll have, have them bring us some fruit and if it's good enough then we'll put it in our fruit displays and so when we put them out in the fruit displays or we might even make juice, if it's a juice type fruit, we'll show that in the fruit display and then we'll get feedback from the industry people that attend the, the fruit displays. And then we use that feedback to help us decide on which ones to enter into the parent tree program and which ones to move forward uh, for advanced trials. So that's how the process works, especially for fresh. Now for the oranges, if it's a true orange, uh, when the tree starts producing enough fruit, we, we run it through our pilot plant. So we'll take about two thirds of a bushel of fruit. It's the amount of fruit we need for a sample. We can run it through our, our juice extractor. We have an FMC that mimics the, the juice extract, extractor in the industry. And then it has a computerized system that will tell us the percentage of juice, 
what the BRICS is, uh, what the ratio is, um, and then we can run a, take a little sample and run a color test. And so we're, we, we do that. And if, if it's, if we're looking for early maturity, we run all the samples, say the first week of December. If we're looking for a mid season, we'll be running them in, you know, in mid January. And then we, we find all the ones that have the, the ratios that are around 15 for that particular time of the year. And, and then uh, we start doing more advanced testing with those. So it's a, a little bit different for fresh versus the, the processing selections in the oranges. But we, we want to engage more and more people in the industry to get the feedback. And of course, we're paying attention to the HLB tolerance of the selections as well. So we, we don't throw away things that are really good that, that may have mediocre HLB tolerance because we, if we find a home run rootstock, they, you know, they could still end up being really important varieties. So uh, we, we, uh, we do have one really exciting new fresh fruit variety, uh, in my opinion, and that's, uh, we're gonna be calling it uh, Gator Bites and we think it can compete with the cuties and the halos. It's a, it's a December fruit, but it's very easy to peel. It colors up really nice on the tree. The yields are outrageous. And the HLB tolerance is, is exceptional. Uh, we had to get permission to use the Gator name because that's trademarked by the university's uh, sports department, but the university general council approved our use of the name Gator Bite. So you can look forward to that being released in, in the coming year. And then of course we'll have to scale off the bud wood and, and try to get some larger scale plantings out so we can move it forward. That's a, uh, that's a great name. You know, being a Georgia Bulldog fan, I'd have to eat those, eat those on the down low. <laughs> or you can, you can feed them to your Bulldog, huh? Watch them chomp. There, there, <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I just saw this week that the University of Florida has a new PhD program in plant breeding. Can you speak to that a little bit? What, what's, what's that going to be about? Yeah, so, you know, in, in the University of Florida, we have plant breeders that cover a a large number of commodities, you know, anything from peanuts, peaches, blueberries, strawberries, turf grass, you name it. And we're probably breeding it if you can grow it in Florida. So um, we have a really good faculty, but it turns out that our, our faculty is, is evolved into becoming um, uh, much more than just conventional fruit breeders because uh, a lot of our young breeders in particular uh, have learned all these new molecular tools that have become available. So they're all, they're all not only trained in conventional breeding, but they're trained in how, how to use genomics information, the GWAS uh, selection system and the new molecular marker systems and all sorts of things. So, uh, so they're actually being dual trained in, in conventional breeding and all, all the new tools. And so we wanted to capture, at, capture that in, in our uh, next generation of breeders and have them you know, come out of the gate being trained with, with the full arsenal of tools that, that, that are available that it's growing so fast now it's hard to keep for, for us old guys like myself and Fred to keep up with Fred does a better job of it than I do with, with the genomics and that sort of thing but um, it's it's so much to learn but having the, these people coming coming out of school already trained in, in how to use all these things will definitely facilitate their ability to breed um, selections more efficiently and cost effectively uh, as, as we move forward in the, in the future. Very good. Well, unless you have anything else to add, we can kind of wrap up the conversation today. We uh, really enjoyed having you on the podcast. It was a great discussion and uh, we'll have to have you back again sometime. I, I'd love to do that. I just let's leave the message that, you know, it, it looks like 
it looks like doldrums in, in some areas when you're driving around the state. And I know a lot of people, a lot of people that are in the citrus business are struggling, but I hope, I hope they can hang on a little longer because I think we're making tremendous prog progress. And I think the answers, the answers are coming and, and they're coming faster and faster. So uh, I, I remain very optimistic and I think we have a bright future ahead of us in the citrus business. And that's that's great. That's what this We Believe in Florida Citrus podcast is all about. So it's great to hear and thank you again for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a great day.